0: And to Isaiah chapter 49, I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning. Isaiah 49, we'll be reading the entire chapter, and then we'll be making our way three verses into the 50th chapter. So to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah uh, was uh, speaking to Israel in a day when she was facing two problems, as you might remember. We've identified them before. Uh, One of them is a more... Uh, temporal nature, and the other of eternal consequence. Two problems, I say, Babylon and sin. Israel would be taken into captivity to wicked Babylon as a temporal penalty, an act of discipline, we might say, because of her national disobedience to God, and then into their 70-year exile There until God would bring a savior with a small s uh, by the name of Cyrus, a Persian king who would deliver them from their bondage to Babylonian. Now, we've been hearing much about him over the past several weeks about uh, Cyrus, but for the greater problem, for the problem of a much wider group, by the way, than just the national people uh, in Palestine. But for every person in the world, uh, from whose curse much more than a small s Savior was needed for deliverance, a capital S Savior, rather, would be needed, and one would be supplied. Indeed, we've had a glimpse of him already here in Isaiah, back in chapter 42, where we learned of him in general terms. Now Isaiah becomes a bit more specific As the veil is pulled back a little bit more from the servant of the Lord, our Savior. Uh, This one in chapter 49 is the second of what are commonly called today the servant songs in Isaiah. The first one being found in chapter 42, and then this one here in 49, another in chapter 50. And then most famously and best known to you uh, in chapters 52 through 53. Well, to Isaiah 49 after we pray. Father, we ask that you will send your spirit here, the same one who inspired the uh, prophet Isaiah to speak and pen these words, to open our hearts to receive them so that his ministry will be complete from beginning to end. And Grant to us, we pray, Father, a glimpse of our Savior, the servant of the Lord, we pray, that when we are finished worshiping this morning, we may love, adore, and worship Him more than we did when we entered this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me now, this is the servant of the Lord, the Son, speaking of what the Father has said to him, right? He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing, in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring, back, bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet stay. Uh, will yet say, rather, in your ears, "The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in." Then you will say in your heart, "Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From whence have these come?" Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow to you, And lick the dust off of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives from a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord... Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I... Clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God is unspeakably gracious to us. Isn't he? I mean, here he is, some 700 years before Christ's birth, bringing encouragement to us in our time of need. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to lose confidence in the ways of God, indeed to lose confidence in God. As often as not, we find ourselves, even as we live here in the lap of luxury and freedom, in this day and in this nation, beaten down, discouraged, spiritually speaking, and struggling. We. We look around us like the man in Psalm 73 at the way uh, the wicked seem to prosper and grow rich while the righteous struggle. We we look at the, the politics that go on, even just in our own workplaces, the injustices, let alone all the bad news that comes in a constant stream over our radios and wonder if God really could be in charge of all that we see. Parents grow discouraged over the lives of their children. Grown children about their parents. And again like the man in Psalm 73. Our, fe- our feet begin to slip. From the path. We begin to lose hope. We grow despondent. Until. Until. Until we come into the sanctuary of God, and once again He speaks to our souls, shows us something of Himself, reveals a little more of the greater things of His salvation, of the redemption that has been accomplished, and that He's bringing to bear not only on us individually but on the nations, not only on the nations, but on the whole earth, from pole to pole. These spirit-inspired words of Isaiah here were written originally, of course, for the encouragement of saints who were in uh, captivity in Babylon, and so their hearts were beaten down within them and downcast. The tears were practically still hot on their cheeks from having seen Jerusalem Behind them in flames, the terror that had seized their hearts at the sight of Babylon's armies surrounding and taking them captive now had settled into a general sense of dread and grief, and even their very identity now seemed lost, separated as they were from the land that had so long formed the very basis of their identity. All hope seemed lost. Into that dreadful, dark night of the soul breaks this one. The one whom Isaiah identifies simply as the servant of the Lord. And we've seen him before in Isaiah, back in chapter 42. And we've also heard that term servant, haven't we? Plenty of times used in Isaiah's prophecy. Sometimes that title has been applied to the nation of Israel. Remember that? Back in chapter 41. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So to the nation of Israel, he has said this, and also there are a number of Texts in Isaiah we've seen where the servant is identified with the believing remnant within Israel. This is our text last week. Isaiah 48. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. But now, here, without a doubt, that title servant is given to an individual. So what we have is the title applied in a pattern, something along the lines of what we might call concentric circles. The servant in the broadest sense being the nation of Israel. Servant being applied to the remnant of faithful believing within Israel. And now servant applied to the one Redeemer, whom God calls his servant, the servant of the Lord, the individual in the innermost circle. I began by saying that God is bringing us here help in our time of need, encouragement in a day of discouragement in which we're tempted to lose hope, and he is. The help, the renewal of your hope comes from the center of that circle, Comes from the one who is revealed, the Redeemer of Israel, the servant of the Lord, from considering him, from worshiping him. And we'll do just that this morning by looking first at his name, and then at his mission, and then finally, third, at his destination. You might say that we're going to ask who he is, and what he is doing, and where he is going. And we with him. First consider his name. What is it? What is this individual servant's name? Look at verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now wait a minute. <laughs> what want to say. His name is Israel? Yes. It is. Now, now, wait a minute. I thought he was coming to save Israel. That's right. He is. Now, you can hear something of, a, of, a, of an Abbott and Costello routine, you know, starting here. Well, who's on first and what's on second? Who's lost? Israel. And who's come to save? Israel. Well, who's who? Yes! Israel has come to save. To save Israel. Confused? Let' think it through for a minute. Israel is the name of God's people in the Bible. It is a name you'll remember that was inherited from a single individual whose name had been Jacob and was changed to Israel. And then from Israel came a multitude of people, generations, who also would bear that name, Israel. But, as we heard last week, they would surrender that name. They would make themselves unworthy of that name by their behavior. That glorious name, they would surrender. And now another individual would come along. And we know him, of course, by the name Jesus. He, too, would wear the name Israel. Only he would wear it perfectly perfectly. Righteously, gloriously, and purely. As F.B. Myers put it, he would be the epitome and the personification of all that was noblest and divinest in Judaism. Jesus came from Israel. He identified himself with Israel. He became a substitute in the place of Israel. He alone is most worthy, therefore, to wear that name, Israel. He becomes everything that Israel should have been in order to save Israel. He was born, as you remember, of a man called from the womb, from the body of my mother Verse 1, language so reminiscent to us of chapter 7, isn't it? Of verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name. And there his name was Emmanuel. He came, God, that is, came among us for the purpose of identifying so closely with us, even in his name, so as to be in the position to bear our sins for us, in our place, in a life that was in no wise easy for him, but only difficult all the time, it seemed. And so who could say, verse 4, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Vanity. And then in a death that was so unspeakably horrific that words fail us under the penalty that you and I so devastatingly earn for ourselves. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's his name, Israel's. Consider second his mission of the task for which he came. We know he'd been intended by the Father for this work because of the language of preparation there in verse 2. He made me a polished arrow. And in his quiver, he hid me away. Like God's secret weapon is how I imagine this. The servant waited to do his work at just the perfect time. At just the right time, God the Father pulled him from the quiver, laid him across the bow, and fired him into the world, plunging full force on his mission, this polished arrow and prepared. James Was watching a video the other day about the history of the tools of war and over the centuries how they've developed, how one weapon or the other would give this army an edge over the other army and make victory possible where it was thought impossible. I sat down and watched a few minutes with them when they came, or just at the time that they came to the development of the bow and arrow for warfare. Archers, I learned for the first time, were very highly trained specialists for their work in war. Not everyone could become an archer. It required physical strength. It required skills, uh, a sense of proportion and distance that was uncommon. It was much easier later on after the development of gunpowder to put a gun in every man's hand and send him out to war and to replace him, by the way, almost instantly with another rifleman. But it was much more than that to make of a man an archer. What surprised me even more was the brutal force that an arrow delivered in ancient uh, days. The arrow revolutionized warfare because of its terrible force upon colliding with a human body. And you might be tempted to think, as I have for so long, of arrows as sort of lightweight sticks with a sharp pointy thing uh, you know, on the end. But as a matter of fact, arrows were very long, sometimes as long as four feet and heavy. They delivered a brutal amount of of force on their victims and were very effective at dropping an army to its knees. So Jesus was fired as an arrow into the world, a polished and well-prepared arrow to accomplish the mission of destroying sins, curse its cursed hold on us. But here is what would have been so surprising to Israel of old. Though it should not have been, his interest in the world was not limited only to those who were Israelites in race or of Israelitish uh, nationality. Or even just for the believing remnant of that nation. This arrow would pierce the entire world World where it struck and it burst forth in light. Verse 6 is a light for the nations that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Gentiles, you see, were in his mission too. Jesus' own ministry was marked, wasn't it, by almost constant reaches out past Israel into the Gentiles. From the Magi who came at his earliest years to the centurion who recognizes him on the cross for who he is, surely this is the Son of God. From the Samaritan woman at the well to the Canaanite woman commended by Jesus for her faith, from Jesus' flight with his parents to Egypt to the sending of his disciples into all the earth, to make disciples of all the nations the gentiles are firmly in the grasp of his salvific mission later on the apostle paul you might remember would quote from this very chapter of isaiah to justify his ministry to the gentiles I don't have to remind you, or at least I hope I don't, that almost every one of you, maybe every single one of you, to the man in this room, are Gentiles. It's no small thing, my brothers and sisters, that we should find ourselves included in the Israel of God today. And that this one, this deliverer of Israel, this servant of the Lord, should have come to deliver you from your bondage when he came for Israel. Now think about it. Here we are in Owensboro, Kentucky. Thousands and thousands of miles from where that arrow first struck the earth. And dealt its saving blow, not to mention thousands of years. But it was his mission of old, from Isaiah's day, it was his mission, and before to save you. His view was that wide. His mission that inclusive what this means is that yours must be too I mean your mission and your view must be as well enough enough already of this focusing inward on ourselves Uh, of, of even being at one another's throats as Christians are sometimes known to be. Our mission, as we follow him, is his mission. And it is to see the light of the gospel spread far and wide to the nations until the knowledge of God spreads like the water over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. And then third, consider his destination. By the way, uh, your destination as well. He's leading us onward to a place, verse 10, where they shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. The language, of course, is referring to a promised land. It is a repetition of the promise of old to our forefathers, of those uh, forefathers of those with whom Isaiah had to do, the ones who followed Moses to the Jordan Gate, and Joshua from there into the promised land. And indeed, God would bring his people back, even these people to whom Isaiah was speaking. Bring them back, I say, to the promised land from their captivity to rebuild the walls and the temple in Jerusalem. But in the Bible, these things, the land and and, um, the promises, uh, these things are foreshadowings and they are pictures of things to come. Canaan in the Bible becomes heaven. And the pilgrims continue to look for a land yet to come. Not a piece of real estate along the Mediterranean in, east, uh, in the East, but a place whose architect, or, uh, arch- architect and builder is God. The most marvelous thing about that place, of course, will be to see there the true Israel. Israel the one who is worthy of bearing that name, the servant of the Lord, to see him glorified, verse 7, by kings and by princes, by those who are thought to be so great and high and mighty on the earth, but whose might and strength then will serve the singular purpose of worshiping your Lord and your Savior. I began this morning by saying to you that we would find encouragement for ourselves. In this, and I believe we do, and that we have. How? Just this, dear flock. If you will learn, like Israel had to learn in Babylon of old during her captivity, I say, if you will learn to measure everything that you see and experience in this world, all of the sadness, all of the grief, All of your disappointments, even in yourself, in your own failures and shortcomings, in your mistakes, and yes, in your sins, all of the difficulty and injustice that you see and experience, learn to measure even oil spewing from holes in the bottom of the ocean and oil-blackened creatures and a 323-point loss in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I say, if you will learn to hold and to view all of these temporal things against the great realities, the greatest of them, the Israel of God sent to save you, even you, O oh Gentile, from the blackened ravages of your sin and the certainty of ultimate justice, of enemies totally vanquished, the enemies of God drinking their own blood and becoming drunk on it and eating their own flesh and meanwhile of the knowledge of God spreading over the earth like the waters cover the sea, of total vindication of God's cause and yours, then I say nothing in this sad world will be able ultimately to pull you down again.